Hello, and welcome to the first edition of the Lesbian and Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York, and with me is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School. Art is the founder of Legal, as well as the chief editor and writer of Lesbian and Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly summary of all the latest legal and political developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Art has written numerous articles on employment law, AIDS law, and LGBT law, is a frequent national spokesperson on sexual orientation law, and an expert on the rapidly emerging area of gay family law. He is also a contributing writer for Gay City News, New York's bi-weekly LGBT newspaper. Thank you, Art, for being here. Uh, and with that, let's get started talking about the lead story in the September 2011 issue of Law Notes. And Art, you lead this issue with news regarding Don't, De- don't Ask, Don't Tell, specifically the certification by the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that the Don't Ask, Don't Tell Repeal Act of 2010 can be implemented. So let's talk about exactly what that means since it has been some time since the President announced his intentions to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Well, what it means is that the deal that was struck in the legislation adopted in December of 2010 uh, is now coming to fruition. Uh, The deal was that Congress would agree to remove from federal statutory law the requirement that the Defense Department follow this don't ask, don't tell policy, and they would leave it up to the Defense Department to decide whether it was appropriate to actually remove the policy itself. Uh, The policy had been frozen into statutory law in 1993 during the first year of the Clinton administration. And that basically tied the hands of the military. They couldn't change the policy because it would have to be repealed by Congress first. So what happened was uh, Congress passed the statute. It was signed by the president in December. And then it was up to the Defense Department to undertake a process of rewriting its regulations and educating its staff on whatever new policies were to be put into place. During the course of the winter and the spring and the summer, they undertook this process, and it was clearly a process that was aimed at replacing the don't ask, don't tell policy with, as they've said, a policy of neutrality with respect to uh, homosexuality in the military. Now, Art, I, I want to jump in there. One, So just in terms of our expectation of where we are, because this has been a fairly long process, especially for those of us, uh, those members of our community serving in the armed forces, um, are we to expect that 60 days from that certification now that this repeal can now finally be enacted and the policy that we've been talking about will finally go away? Well, that's what's been announced by the Defense Department, that 60 days after the certification, The don't ask, don't tell policy will be history. It will no longer be in effect. And the big question now is what's in its place? What's in its place is that sexual orientation will become irrelevant to someone's qualifications to enlist and to serve in the military. You can talk about it. You can tell. uh, But we have to keep in mind what still remains in place. And one of the things that remains in place is Article 125 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which makes it a crime to engage in sodomy in the military. Uh, So ending the policy does not end Article 125. What uh, might end Article 125 is the Supreme Court's decision from 2003 in Lawrence versus Texas, which made it unconstitutional to criminalize uh, homosexual conduct between consenting adults. 
the position of the military on Lawrence versus Texas has been uh, sort of difficult to parse. Uh, when, when you say that, what, you do note in Law Notes that you, you view Lawrence, obviously, as the sort of paving the way for this, uh, for many of the developments, yeah. certainly, but particularly for the repeal of this policy as well. Well, the, the thing is that the military is a different world than the civilian world. And the military appeal courts who've dealt with cases of uh, military personnel who are being thrown out for actually engaging in sodomy in the military, and m many of those cases are heterosexual sodomy cases because sodomy under the military law is any oral or anal sexual activity, uh, not just same sex. The position that the military courts have taken is that the sphere of privacy protected by the 14th Amendment as recognized in the Lawrence case and by the Fifth Amendment, of course, for purposes of federal law, uh, that that sphere of privacy also exists in the military, but to a lesser extent because of the special needs of the military. Because uh, when someone is on a military base, even though it's not their shift, they're not on duty, they're on call. They're on call 24-7 any time a military emergency breaks out. And they have to maintain good order and there is much less privacy and military living quarters than in civilian uh, society. And so the courts have recognized that the military is a specialized sort of world and that Lawrence may not apply to the same extent in the military. So they've taken the position that if there is any complicating factor in a sodomy case that makes it in their minds distinguishable from the Lawrence situation, which was a same-sex adult couple in a private home, that they may still be able to apply Article 125. Well, but and, and sorry to interrupt there, Art. Uh, I do want to – you're pointing to, and we're, we're going to talk to, uh, I think, more in a bit about some of the – what hasn't changed right. and what won't change, at least in the short term, uh, despite the repeal. And we do seem to be on our way uh, within a short time to, to the complete repeal. Perhaps even by the time people listen to this podcast. Th that, that could be true. Um, but I, I think it's worth taking a step back also. Um, the legislative repeal, this whole process, has occurred against the backdrop of ongoing litigations uh, with respect to Don't Ask, Don't Tell um, within the courts themselves. And I was wondering if you could give us a flavor of, one, what those actions have been and uh, what their prospects are now given the actions taken by the political branches. Okay. As, as soon as Don't Ask, Don't Tell was implemented – uh, there was thought about a strategy to challenge it in the courts. And the ACLU and Lambda Legal put together a grand test case that was actually brought late in the 1990s in the U.S. District Court in Brooklyn. And they persuaded a district court judge that the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy was unconstitutional. But that decision was reversed by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals on the grounds that this was really a legislative judgment, that, in fact, the judiciary was not in a position to second-guess the political branches who were charged with the national defense and with making decisions about how to raise and command armies. And so the Second Circuit deferred to military judgment and reversed the district court. Uh, that was at the end of the last century. And then the court battle sort of simmered down until Lawrence versus Texas uh, because Lawrence versus Texas really provided a vehicle for making new arguments that one couldn't make before Lawrence because the prevailing uh, precedent before Lawrence was Bowers versus Hardwick, which held that it was perfectly all right for the government to outlaw consensual sodomy. It's sort of hard to argue that people 
who are possibly going to engage in criminal activity should nonetheless be allowed to serve in the military. It, it was a more difficult argument to make. It's a fair point. So, uh, so after Lawrence, uh, it was possible to make these stronger arguments. And there were two cases that were going through the courts, uh, one in the U.S. District Court in the state of Washington and the other in the U.S. District Court in the state of California. And in both of those cases, uh, before the Congress voted on the Don't Ask, Don't Tell Repeal Act, federal district judges had found the policy to be unconstitutional. And those cases were pending on review. Uh, After Congress repealed the policy, the case in the state of Washington was settled. But the case uh, from California remains open and pending before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And this this is the case of the Log Cabin Republicans, Republicans. right, which is a a gay Republican political organization which was suing in its representative capacity – claiming that it had members who were in the military and who were affected by the policy. Uh, There was a lot of wrangling about their standing to bring the case. Uh, But the case is pending in the Ninth Circuit. And the case, in fact, was pending in the Ninth Circuit when the Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal statute was passed. So the Defense Department and the Justice Department asked the Ninth Circuit to just put the case on hold on the theory that once... The certification was made. Once the policy was ended, the lawsuit would be moot. That is, there would be nothing to decide anymore because what the lawsuit was mainly concerned with was ending the policy. The policy would be ended. And and on that point, um, the latest iteration where we are now, I mean, the Log Cabin Republicans are still arguing within that case, the plaintiffs in that case, that their claims, despite where we are now with respect to the certification and the pending repeal, that those claims are not moot. Uh, in part, at least, I think the latest argument, as you point out, is that the you know entire 17-year reign of this policy and all the people who suffered under this policy who have, may have claims, that their claims for damages as a result of this policy could be affected and, in fact, strengthened if a court was to find, continue to find this policy as it was in existence unconstitutional. That's, that's correct. There are various uh, legal forms in which this is a relevant issue. For example, the Defense Department was going after people who received ROTC scholarships in college to reclaim them if the individual came out and subsequently was booted out of ROTC. Uh, There were cases of gay people who graduated from the service academies and were serving as officers in the military and were separated under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and then they're asked to pay tuition for that free uh, college education they received in the service academies. So those cases are pending. And then, of course, there are the possibility, if the, if the policy is ultimately held unconstitutional by an appellate court, that there might be grounds for people who were discharged to go back and sue for damages for an unconstitutional discharge. So uh, on the basis of that, I mean, do you think it is likely that the court will allow the case to continue uh, for the reasons you just articulated? I think federal judges like to avoid deciding controversial cases if there's a good way out. And so I think that ultimately the Ninth Circuit may decide that the case is moot because when the, when the log cabin Republicans filed the case, the main relief they were looking for was an injunction against operation of the don't ask, don't tell policy, and there is no need for such an injunction once the policy is ended. Now, they could argue that it isn't moot because the don't ask, don't tell repeal statute merely repealed the existing statutory policy, and it turned things back to the Pentagon. Now, we have to remember that from shortly before World War II until 1993, there was a policy in place 
barring military service by gay people in various different iterations, it was always an administratively adopted policy by the Defense Department. It was not mandated by statute. So in the absence of a statute, the Defense Department theoretically could change its mind and reinstate a policy administratively. Every, I believe every active candidate for uh, the presidential nomination on the Republican side in the current round leading up to the primaries has taken the position that they're opposed to ending the don't ask, don't tell policy. And a few of them have even said that if elected, they would try to reinstate it. And that does bring up a good point, which is the, um, the idea that I think is a little sad or scary for us to contemplate, which is, and I, I pose to you that in the absence, maybe you've already answered it, in the absence of a court ultimate court finding that this policy or an iteration of this policy cannot be implemented because it's unconstitutional. Uh, in a administration of uh, Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, for example, who has publicly stated that she thought Don't Ask, Don't Tell was working just fine and that on the table in her presidential administration would be bringing back the policy, um, do you think it's possible that with a the right mix, and I mean right meaning the, uh, well, maybe I do mean Politically right. right. <laughs> uh, mix of change either in presidential administrations and or Congress that somehow we may not have seen the last of some version of don't ask, don't tell, or something worse perhaps? Well, in the absence of a definitive ruling from the courts that the policy is unconstitutional, theoretically either Congress or the, uh, the president or the Defense Department administratively could try to reinstate the policy. Uh, and so, in that sense, the log cabin Republicans' position that it's not moot is correct. It's not moot. And uh, we, 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 we've jumped ahead to uh, that's the, the worst outcome, I think, uh, for, many, for many of us. Um, but I did want to get back to one thing we, we touched on a little bit earlier, uh, which is the, what, what the repeal will not change. And you, you okay. spoke about one of them earlier. But right. I want to focus also, um, you note in, in, in the law note that the Service Members Legal Defense Network, which is a national advocacy organization formed in 1993 to lobby for the repeal of the policy, has put out a guide to assist um, members of the LGBT community um, who are serving or thinking about and serving in light of the impending repeal. And they point out uh, quite a few things that won't change. And I do want to pause uh, for one moment with the issue of um, transgender service, uh, service by members of the transgender community within the armed forces. And um, first, if you could address the sort of the background on how it appears that the ban doesn't do, the lifting of the ban doesn't help members of the transgender community per se, and maybe walk us through a little bit um, how it is that members of the transgender community perhaps are left out of this victory. Well, they're left out of the victory because they weren't part of the statute. It's, it's really interesting. The debate back in 1993 about whether gay people should be allowed to serve, which was sparked by President Clinton's campaign pledge to end the ban that then existed, and his reiteration of that pledge shortly before his inauguration, uh, which set off the firestorm in Congress that led to the policy, transgender was never discussed as part of that. The entire focus was on homosexuality. And in fact, the existing policies that we've been talking about, whether it's the ban that preceded Don't Ask, Don't Tell or Don't Ask, Don't Tell, are solely focused on homosexuality. And transsexualism, particularly cross-dressing as an aspect of that, uh, has always been dealt with separately under military law as a medical exclusion. The Defense Department has taken the position that gender identity disorder is a disqualifying medical condition. And that's contained in completely separate regulations which are not at all affected 
by the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell directly. Uh, as a policy matter, they might want to reconsider. I understand that some other nations have allowed transgender service members, and in fact, I recall a news report from Australia recently that uh, the Australia Defense Forces are paying for the gender reassignment surgery of an officer who will then be allowed to serve. The point is that uh, at least one other major ally of us in military operations, another English-speaking nation with a similar history and background, has decided that transgender people should be allowed to serve. What else doesn't change despite the certification? One of the most important things that doesn't change is that we still have the Defense of Marriage Act and its requirement that for all purposes of federal law, a marriage shall only be the union of one man and one woman. When Congress passed the Don't Ask, Don't Tell Repeal Act back in December, they included a provision specifically stating that DOMA remains intact and applies in the military. And so the military will not be able to accord equal treatment to the same-sex spouses of uh, gay military personnel. And this will undoubtedly cause tensions in the military. So this is a big issue, and it may even be part of undermining the continued existence of DOMA. That concludes our discussion of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing a Seventh Circuit case involving a state statute that barred the Wisconsin Department of Corrections from paying for hormone therapy or sexual reassignment surgery for prisoners diagnosed with gender identity disorder. Stay with us. We are back discussing a case out of the Seventh Circuit. Specifically, the Seventh Circuit recently affirmed the Eastern District of Wisconsin's finding that a state statute barring the Wisconsin Department of Corrections from paying for hormone therapy or sexual reassignment surgery for prisoners diagnosed with gender identity disorder is unconstitutional, both facially and as applied. This is the case of Fields v. Smith, and uh, this case concerned the so-called Inmate Sex Change Prevention Act. Tell us a little bit about uh, exactly what that act attempted to cover. Well, what happened was that there were some news stories about the fact that transgender inmates in the Wisconsin prison system were receiving hormone therapy at taxpayer expense, and this caused no little political consternation among the legislature in Wisconsin. And so they passed this Inmate Sex Change Prevention Act. Which is a bit of a, um, a misnomer gonna, given yes. what you described. Yeah, they're going to prevent sex changes. Well, uh, what they're going to prevent is the state from spending any money to provide any kind of medical treatment uh, to assist people who are experiencing gender identity disorder. And there were several inmates who were told that their ongoing hormone therapy would be discontinued. And this was rather alarming news because once one has started in on hormone therapy and has continued for some period of time, the body changes. And if you remove the hormone therapy, the results can be pretty drastic for the individual. So these inmates contacted the ACLU. The ACLU went to the federal district court in Wisconsin and got some temporary relief for them. They were to receive the hormone therapy while the case was going on. And the ACLU articulated two legal theories on which this policy could be challenged. One is the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment, 
The other is the requirement under the 14th Amendment that states afford equal protection of the laws to all their citizens, including those in jail. So in this case, uh, the Court of Appeals, in affirming the lower court, decided that it was, it was going to do the case as an Eighth Amendment case, and they didn't rule on the equal protection claim. Focusing on the Eighth Amendment, when people are sent to prison, their punishment is their incarceration in prison. And it's not supposed to include deprivation of medical treatment for serious medical conditions. The Supreme Court has made clear that it violates the ban on cruel and unusual punishment for a prison to be deliberately indifferent to the medical suffering of prisoners. After all, the prisoners are not allowed to bring in their private doctor to the prison. They're not allowed to import medications. And, and the court actually points that out, that even inmates who could afford to pay for right. outside services are actually prohibited from doing so. So you have these, these prisoners who really have no choice. Once this medical treatment is withdrawn from them, they must basically be left to suffer. Right, to go through withdrawal from hormone therapy, and uh, which has both physical and psychological consequences. So the... Uh, issue was, and the issue has been in many transgender prisoner cases, is gender identity disorder a serious medical condition for which the prison is required to provide treatment? And in this case, as in many recent cases, the court said, yes, it is a serious medical condition. And furthermore, if the medical experts who are consulted on this agree that hormone therapy is necessary for these particular transgender prisoners, then they're entitled to it. Uh, the state's main argument against it was not a an expense argument. Uh, well, they although, ultimately disclaimed that argument. Yeah, it they, sounds like they had toyed with it or had right. made that argument. It's, it's an argument that has been made in the past, especially uh, regarding sex reassignment surgery, which is an expensive surgical procedure. But the court pointed out that there was evidence in the record that they spend more on medical treatments for other prisoners routinely. In fact, a lot of medical prisoners are being sedated pretty heavily to keep them under control, and that turns out to be more expensive than hormone therapy. And not to mention that some of the ill effects that would be experienced by some of these prisoners by denying them this treatment would actually wind up running up the bill in other ways for right. the treatment they would need because of the withdrawal of that, would, right. that treatment. So, uh, so expense was not going to fly as a justification. The other justification they brought up was uh, maintaining order and control in the prison. They said that they would have security issues. And this argument was totally destroyed by one of their own witnesses who it seems had worked in a different prison system in the past, Colorado system, in which they did provide hormone therapy, and he said there were no problems with security as a result of that, that uh, the security issues were no different uh, if you had transgender prisoners who were cross-dressing and were not receiving hormones, which might even be more of a problem. And, and how important, though, Art, you mentioned the, the existence of a classification called a, as the court terms it, and I believe the medical establishment, at least here in the United States, currently terms it, uh, gender identity disorder. How important was the existence of this as a as a disorder to the court's analysis? Because you, you, you've mentioned, or I think you've written upon, or certainly there's been cases cited uh, in other countries uh, showing a movement away from characterizing uh, some of the aspects of the disconnect between 
um, the way one experiences their biological sex as opposed to how they may feel outwardly in the world, that there's a movement away from classifying this as a disorder. So I, I wonder if you could speculate what this case might look like if, for instance, a few years from now, this is no longer classified as a disorder in a uh, psychological sense. Well, that's, that's a very interesting question to speculate about. But at the present time, uh, the courts are all agreed that this is a serious medical condition. If it isn't a serious medical condition, the existing Eighth Amendment jurisprudence on the requirement that prisons supply necessary medical treatment would uh, fall apart. And it will be. It would have to be resolved as an equal protection issue. Well, I'm going to. I'm going to push you to speculate again. Then we'll see if, if this one works better. Is that this is in the context of prisoners, uh, and it's a result that I think obviously many of us um, are happy about that these prisoners are not being denied what is really necessary medical treatment. Um, but do we expect the analysis here in any way to affect, for example, how potential actions might be treated in the future? Uh, I'm thinking of a potential transgender plaintiff who, in the context of a government uh, health care program or even a private insurance carrier who may be seeking certain treatment, is this kind of analysis about what it's like for these individuals to, to, to not have that kind of treatment? Is, is, can it be imported into other contexts, or is this really a prison-based analysis? Well, to the extent that it's an Eighth Amendment analysis, it will be a prison-based analysis. To the extent that we finally get to the Fourteenth Amendment issues, it obviously could have a broader application. There was a recent ruling by the tax court on the question whether the expenses that a transgender individual incurs in treatment should be tax-deductible. And the position of the Internal Revenue Service has traditionally been that this is elective treatment. Uh, they were refusing to recognize this as a serious medical condition. They said it was like cosmetic surgery, uh, and the issue being uh, sex reassignment surgery expenses because they have conceded that hormone treatment would be deductible. Is this one of the reasons um, the court perhaps, I know courts obviously don't reach issues that they say they don't have to, but here the court very clearly uh, under that doctrine says they're not going to reach the right. equal protection issue. But is this court writing against the backdrop of knowing exactly the different contexts where this might go a certain directions if they reach the issue? Not necessarily, but I, I think courts do try to ground their decisions on the narrowest grounds possible to avoid making unnecessary decisions that might have unanticipated effects elsewhere. Can you take a step back here for, we've, we've spoken a little bit in the context of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, we spoke about some of the challenges still facing certainly the transgender community in that context, and we can talk about a lot of other contexts where that remains to be true. I think we're a long way from full equality for all members of our community. But in terms of this as another sign of progress for the transgender community, I mean, do you see this as part of a larger trend in decisions that you've been writing about where courts finally seem more hospitable towards claims brought by transgender individuals? Yeah, I think we're, we're seeing that courts are being educated on the nature of gender identity. And this can only be helpful in the long run. We still have some issues on which there are real sticking points. Uh, we have transgender marriage cases. Uh, normally, uh, the case law has been invo involving people who are surviving spouses uh, who uh, went through sex reassignment and now are seeing their marriages invalidated and their inheritances imperiled in litigation. And I think we really need to have a accumulating body of appellate precedent recognizing the reality of gender identity before we're going to see substantial progress outside of these very limited spheres that we've had so far. 
Okay, we'll take one more break, and when we return, we'll discuss some good news out of the Nebraska Supreme Court concerning the rights of same-sex co-parents to pursue custody claims under the doctrine of in loco parentis. We are back discussing a case out of the Nebraska Supreme Court. It's Latham versus a defendant with a last name beginning with S that I'm going to defer to Art to actually pronounce. But in this case, Nebraska Supreme Court joined a growing list of state courts that have adapted the common law doctrine of in loco parentis, which has been used to consider parental rights of step-parents and grandparents to provide a basis for allowing same-sex co-parents to seek to preserve their relationships with children after the end of a relationship with a biological or adoptive parent. Before we jump into the facts of this case, um, Art, can you explain for our listeners what we mean by the doctrine of in loco parentis and perhaps some of what it used to mean in terms of limits for members of the LGBT community with children? Well, in loco parentis is a concept in which a third party, someone who is not legally related to the child or the parent, assumes the role of a parent. And the issue in these cases, uh, and there's, it's a common fact pattern that has arisen in dozens and dozens of cases all over the country, uh, normally a lesbian couple who have been together for some period of time decide that they want to have a child, and they're not interested in adoption. They're interested in having a child who they will conceive with assistance from a sperm donor, either known or unknown, and one of the women will become pregnant. And the two of them will share parenting duties when the child is born, and they will treat each other as equal parents of the child. That's normally their intent. They may or may not put this in some kind of written agreement. They probably should put it in some kind of written agreement, but unfortunately most of the cases that arise don't involve written agreements. And even when there is a written agreement, some courts have taken the position that a written agreement can't take priority over the court's view of the best interest of the child in making a custody or visitation ruling. But the sticking point in many of these cases, if the relationship uh, of the two mothers goes sour, uh, that the birth mother may seek to exclude the other mother from continued contact with the child. And, and that's what and that's what's what happened, happened in, here. This here is, and in many other cases. And, uh, and this is the case of Latham versus, you take it away. Yeah, uh, Schwertfeger. All right. At least Latham, that's how I've been saying it. Latham versus S. So and, far I've only seen it in writing, so I don't know how. Uh, in, in my article uh, where I wrote this up for Law Notes, I decided to use first names because I didn't want to have to type Schwertfeger too many times. So Terry and Susan, then. Terry and Susan. Right. So in this case, Terry and Susan, uh, it's sort of a classic fact pattern. In right. that Susan had the kid. Uh, Terry and Susan were equal co-parents uh, from the time the child was born. After a few years, their relationship foundered. Uh, Terry moved out. She was allowed a certain amount of visitation by Susan going forward, but that declined over time. And at the point where she got cut off, pretty much, she brought a lawsuit seeking a court to declare that she had rights as a parent. She was seeking custody. She was seeking visitation. And the roadblock in these cases is that state statutes governing these kinds of disputes are set up to govern disputes between legal parents. And they normally provide no standing for third parties who are not related to the child. Uh, And in this case, there was no relationship. There was no adoption. 
they're in Nebraska, which has a, an anti-gay marriage constitutional amendment. Even if they were married elsewhere, their marriage wouldn't be recognized in Nebraska. I think you point out Nebraska also does not even make available civil unions or right. domestic nothing, partnerships. No legal relationship for same-sex partners. Uh, and so the trial court said, look, there's no legal relationship between these women. There's no legal relationship between Terry and the child, who's referred to by his initials P.S. throughout the decision, uh, because the court also didn't want to have to type Schwertfeger every time they referred to Well, no, it's really to preserve the anonymity of the child. Uh, and so the trial judge said, Terry just doesn't have any standing here. Uh, she can't seek any kind of declaration of parental rights. And in reversing, the Nebraska Supreme Court followed a recent trend in uh, state appellate courts and many other jurisdictions saying that the doctrine of in loco parentis, which was first developed to assist step-parents or grandparents who had formed a parental relationship with a child to seek to maintain uh, either partial or full custody or visitation rights after a relationship breaks down. And the court saw an analogy here because they said that Terry had a parental relationship, or at least she had alleged in her uh, complaint in this case, a parental relationship with the child and that the real issue for the court should be what is in the best interest of the child. Is it in the best interest of the child to maintain a relationship with Terry, for her to maintain contact? Uh, and you don't even get to that issue if Terry doesn't have standing. So the procedural device of in loco parentis makes it possible for Terry to have standing and for the court then to send the case back to the trial judge to have a hearing on the merits. And, and, and on this, I, I, certainly I think that's it's true that they certainly point out that the best interests of the child stand that should govern, and I think that makes a lot of sense to a lot of us. Um, but they don't really point out the fact that their jurisdiction has a prohibition against recognition of same-sex couples. I mean, they don't point out to, to count that, seemingly count that against right, uh, finding for rights for this particular individual. Because the court says that's really irrelevant. The issue is what is the quality of the relationship between Terry and the child? That's what's really important for the court. And it's not necessary to recognize any kind of legal relationship between Terry and Susan in order to get to that point. Now, the, those advocates in these states, Nebraska being one of them, and many, many other states across the country who advocated and, and, and succeeded for so-called mini-domas and the like, uh, barring recognition of same-sex marriages and in other ways preventing the recognition of couples even in the civil union or domestic partnership context, I'm sure those advocates didn't have in mind a court making this sort of analogy and, and, and adjudicating the rights between a same-sex couple in a way that we might expect them to do if they were in a jurisdiction that did recognize same-sex family. So I, I guess I ask you, is this something that undercuts a little bit of some of the force of some of these statutes and restrictions that are in place across the country? Well, it certainly provides a basis for bringing traditional family law principles into play, even though this is not legally recognized as a family. And I think in this case, the Nebraska Supreme Court actually lectures the trial judge a little bit. They say the trial judge went wrong in this case by focusing on the relationship between the two women, when the real issue for the court should have been the relationship between Terry and the child. And w I think that's well said. One thing we, we, we don't necessarily see here uh, is one of the parties to the, the now broken up couple 
sort of trying to use affirmatively the lack of recognition uh, in the state or a prohibition on same-sex marriage and the like to use as a sword against the former partner, argue that's why you shouldn't get custody. But you've written on, and I think other writers uh, for Lesbian Gay Law Notes have been covering cases all across the country where we see the phenomenon of former uh, members of a same-sex couple who, when things go sour, uh, in the context of a custody dispute and the like, will seem to not hesitate at all to use the uh, lack of full equality under the law to argue why they should retain custody. And I was wondering if you could comment on whether that's a, a new phenomenon or something you've been writing about some t- for some time and what your thoughts are on that. Oh, this goes back a quarter century. You know, we're, we're talking about going back to the late 1980s when these cases started coming up. And one of the earliest uh, appellate cases is a New York case, the Allison D. versus Virginia M. case from the early 1990s, in which the court held that the lesbian co-parent was a legal stranger to the child and therefore had no standing. Uh, a, a decision, by the way, that was recently reaffirmed by the New York Court of Appeals. Uh, they refused to overrule it or to back away from it, uh, especially now that adoption is available. And as of this past July 24th, same-sex marriage is available in New York which will probably change a lot of the legal landscape in terms of the relationship with children. But I think the important thing to point out about this Nebraska Supreme Court case is that 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I doubt that we would speculate that Nebraska would be a place where we would make this kind of progress. And, in fact, many of the states that have adopted the in loco parentis are not necessarily the states you would suspect as being strongly pro-gay rights. As you pointed out, Brad, some of these states, maybe all of them, have anti-same-sex marriage constitutional amendments or statutes. They're not states where same-sex couples can marry. I think that's well said as well. And then one question, though, that I was left to pause over uh, after reading the case is, I I know you spoke about the court essentially uh, somewhat lecturing the trial court, but is the trial court forbidden here from actually allowing their determination in some way to be informed by the fact that this is a same-sex couple? Because this is now back in the trial court where, where some further determinations are going to be made. But is it is it really the case that that ship has sailed where the fact that these were two women in a relationship could at all affect the analysis? Yeah, I think so because the, uh, the Supreme Court makes very clear that the relationship between the two women is not the issue in the case. And uh, furthermore, both of the women are lesbians. Now, There's a very interesting sort of disconnect with some of the other cases here where the biological mom not only breaks up with her former partner but gets religion or marries a man or declares that she wasn't really a lesbian. Uh, And then uh, the cases can get, well, I hesitate to use the word vicious, but uh, we have to also bear in mind that many of the legal arguments are made as a result of strategic decisions by counsel and are not necessarily something originating with the party. Uh, But there has been some commentary about how dismaying it is to see gay people litigating against each other and raising as a defense doctrines that cut against gay rights. And, And certainly raising the prospects of creating bad law for, for other members of the community in contexts right. that may not involve breakups or really similar facts, perhaps, and we've certainly seen some of that. Well, like the Allison D. case, for example. Absolutely. That's all the time we have today for the first Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast for September 2011. First, my thanks to you, Art, for your work and for being here today, and thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, please visit us at www.le-gal.org or at the Justice Action Center of New York Law School. 
Links to this and future podcasts can also be found online at Legal's website, where you can also donate in support of Lesbian and Gay Law Notes. Thanks again.